2: Do you ever wonder if you are raising a little narcissist and what you can do to stop it? It Seems like everywhere I turn recently, narcissists are in the news. I'm always seeing quizzes to figure out whether I or someone I know is a narcissist. To some extent, narcissists are probably everywhere in political leadership roles, where we work, and sometimes even in our own families. But what makes someone a narcissist? as opposed to maybe just an entitled jerk? And how do we protect ourselves when we have to deal with someone who is exhibiting narcissistic tendencies? And a question that is really important to me is, is there anything that those of us who are parents can do to make sure that we're not raising little narcissists? With all these questions in mind, we reached out to an expert to find out more about what makes someone a narcissist, what narcissism actually is, and why it seems so pervasive these days. Keith Campbell is a professor of psychology at the University of Georgia and author of The New Science of Narcissism, Understanding One of the Greatest Psychological Challenges of Our Time, and What You Could Do About It. Okay. Looks like we are good to go. How are you?
1: Good, thank you. How about yourself?
2: I am you know hanging in today was the
1: uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's been for two years.
2: Is that not the appropriate answer anymore? I know. I'm just sort of like, do you really want to know because yeah. I'm not I'm not able to sugarcoat it. I'm always like, yeah yeah it's it's horrible today actually.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> but we're together, and it's going to get better.
2: It's good. Thank you. Yeah, it was the first day of school for my two girls. So, um, you know, it's all that madness of waking up and no one Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod Studios Enjoy the show.
2: One's ready and there you go. I
1: I know the process. (laughs) I know the process. Mine starts next week. Yep.
2: (gasps) All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. Is it cool with you if I call you Keith? Oh, please. Yeah, yeah. All right. Perfect. Perfect. So, I was reading a lot about you and a lot of your work, and you are a renowned expert on narcissism. So that brings me to my first question is, how does one decide to become the <laughs> a, a renowned expert on narcissism narcissism?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, like a lot of things in academics, it's not like a childhood choice. You know, I didn't wake <laughs> up at age five going, "You know, I just want to understand the ego. Um, It it was something I started studying in graduate school for some academic reasons. It's this question of self-enhancement that we have. People like to inflate themselves, so narcissism was an interesting way to get at that. And I was kind of interested in the the non-self and how to study the lack of ego, more of a Buddhist perspective. And I could never figure that one out. So narcissism kind of worked for me in graduate school. And what happens is you study something that just keeps on. It's like the gift that keeps on giving. So people invent selfies, and you're like, "Oh my goodness." And then they invent social <laughs> media. You're like, "Oh, Facebook, there we go again." And then there was yeah. you know, the school shootings, which hate talking about, but that was another thing. And so mm. um, so narcissism, unfortunately, or fortunately, for my career, has been kind of the, the gift that kept on giving in a really kind of unfortunate way. But that's where we are.
2: Yeah. No, it's really interesting because the subtitle of your book, The New Science of Narcissism, and I don't want to get it wrong, is understanding one of the greatest psychological challenges of our time and what we can do about it. So what? It, why is this a psychological challenge of this particular time, do you think?
1: Well, I would like to to point out that I didn't write the subtitle to, to my book. <laughs> so, so marketers okay. love to inflate the greatest. Yeah. I never think of what I'm doing as the greatest psychological challenge, but it's a big one. And it's the, it's the issue, I think, twofold. One is that individuals are becoming more narcissistic, and that's kind of changing a little bit with the recession and things. But we have a culture where there's individual narcissism, which is a problem. But I think the bigger problem is when the, the narcissism becomes cultural. So either you have narcissistic individuals rise into positions of cultural power, which they do all the time and have historically, and you also have a culture that really focuses on the individual, sort of radical individual atomization. People are you know living alone. They're socially isolated. They're online. They're creating their own universes. So there's a lot of just breaking up of people. And people have talked about this a long time, going back to the you know 60s and 70s, 80s. Um, our our culture has been sort of, and this is worldwide, it's becoming much more individualized. So I think that's an issue. And narcissism is a piece of that.
2: Let's define narcissism, because I think there's the sort of the medical, you know, narcissistic personality disorder. Yeah. And then right. there's- what we commonly think of as narcissism, and we kind of throw that term out. So could you help us differentiate between those two Yeah,
1: yeah, 100%. So most of the research and most of what we're studying is looking at narcissism, the personality trait. And what that means is a personality trait. It's sort of a pattern of behavior that an individual has over their life. There's some stability to it. Um, and that most people are somewhere in the middle. Most people are a little bit narcissistic. It's normal. It's sort of it's adaptive, you know, you, you gotta want to be the leader sometimes. you, you got to be comfortable taking a selfie. So there's this sort of idea that narcissism is a trait. Some people are pretty high in that trait, and that can lead to problems. and some people are maybe low in that trait, and that could lead to problems potentially. Within narcissism, though, this is what makes it confusing. Most people, when they use the term, they mean sort of a self-centered jerk. That's kind of the Mm. shorthand. You're a (laughs) self-centered jerk. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that's part of it, right? That's that's sort of foundational. You're self-centered. You have a sense of entitlement. I deserve special treatment. Things should go my way. But within that, there's two forms. There's one form of narcissism, which we see more in politics. We see more in our bosses. We see more in the people we date, which is this more grandiose form where you have this self-centeredness, but you also have drive and charisma and extroversion and energy, and you can be a pretty likable person. So I meet people that are real grandiose narcissists. I usually kind of like them when I first meet them. They seem outgoing and energized and confident, and they can make you feel good if, if they want. Um, there's this other side to narcissism, this other form, which is called vulnerable narcissism. And this is where you see the much more defensive piece. I'm a big deal. The world should go my way, but no one really sees how great I am. Everyone's threatening me. They're, they don't, they don't uh, give me the praise I deserve. I'm going to get back at those people for not you know, building me up the way they should. And the more vulnerable narcissists end up in therapy more for depression or anxiety or something along those lines, because they're not working as well. So then to get back to the original question, what happens occasionally, and this is maybe one or 2% of the population at any time, is that narcissism becomes so extreme, it's usually grandiose, but also some vulnerability or defensiveness. It becomes extreme. It becomes inflexible. You can't really turn it off, even if you want to. And it starts to damage your life in what we call clinically significant ways. So maybe it ruins your marriage. Maybe it ruins your work. You can't be a leader anymore. You, you, you start making risky mistakes because you, you don't learn from your errors. And in that case, it can become diagnosed as a clinical disorder a personality disorder known as narcissistic personality disorder. So sometimes people use that, you're a narcissist, means you are suffering from a clinical or psychiatric condition of narcissistic personality disorder. Most people don't mean that when they say it, but it gets confused in the language all the time.
2: And I think that's such an important point, is that for a lot of psychological conditions, it's when it's impeding everyday life and it gets in the way of your day-to-day activities, your ability to maintain a job, a relationship, things like that
1: exactly you have to have impairment and if it's not impairing you it's not really a disorder It's just kind of how you are the key with narcissism and this is something that shares with certain addictions but it's really less common is that the impairment can be felt by other people so i could be narcissistic and people go how are you keith oh i'm killing it my life is awesome and then they interview my wife and like this is hell i'm living with a monster so somebody would say, you know, Keith, you're impaired. I'm like, I'm not impaired. They're like, yeah, you are because you, your wife can't stand you. That's, that's a problem. So narcissism is interesting in that way. Like I said, like some addictions, but not like depression or schizophrenia or something where you really end up hurting other people. And that's one of your major forms of impairment.
2: That I really want to kind of unpack that point because that's really interesting. So in terms of having insight into your own sort of these behaviors that in some ways are really, like you said, protective. They help you advance in the world in some ways. Um, so it, it's it's interesting to me to know, like, are, are people aware? Are they self-aware? Or is that one of the pieces of being narcissistic that you don't really even understand what you're doing to other people.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and that's really one of the key issues. And historically, people thought there was a real lack of awareness. They're just like, people are narcissistic or oblivious. They're so into themselves, they don't see any problem. They're just kind of like the bull in the proverbial China shop running over people. And you do see that, for sure. But in the big surveys you know, our students have done, Looking at people, what you'll find is people are narcissistic will report it leads to problems they're like, yeah, my ego leads to some problems and they'll identify interpersonal relationships. So it's not like, I mean, at least when you ask people are narcissistic, they're like, yeah, I can see a downside to this. I can see where it hurts my relationships. I can see where it hurts certain things. There's some awareness to it. Personally, though, uh, if I look at the amount of people who've sent me emails saying, you know, Keith, I'm in a relationship with somebody who's narcissistic versus Keith, I'm narcissistic trying to get better in my relationship. It's about a 100 to 1 ratio, meaning there's there are a few people who are really narcissistic who they can see it. They go look at those people. They're happy. They have good families. They have good lives. They seem to have a rich, warm life. And I don't have that, even though I think I'm a big deal. I'm missing something. But that's not as common as people going, I'm in a relationship with this jackass and it's really bad. (laughs) That's much more common. But there is an awareness there.
2: So what are some of the red flags? Like, What are you thinking about in a relationship when you start and it's just everything is just amazing and fantastic and you're getting flowers and chocolates <laughs> what what are you looking for
1: Yeah the, so the challenge with a lot of modern relationships is they start out with this exciting dating fun part and then they move into the more committed emotionally intimate Yeah, long-term commitment. We're going to be a team and start a family part. So there's a, it's sort of two different relationships. There's a fun one, then there's the the partner one. And what you find,
2: (laughs) I'm sorry, I'd like to just point out that you said (laughs) that there's a fun relationship, and then there's the relationship. I should have said
1: that, and thank God my wife's not listening. But my point (laughs) is, I got to say. I had a lot of fun with my wife when we were dating before we had a lot of kids. You know, it was it was fun. Okay. But it's still wonderful. But there's a transition there. Oh, I got in trouble. I'm I'm busted. but the challenge is when you start dating somebody, usually if somebody's exciting and seems engaging and energizing, that's really fun. And so when you start dating people who are narcissistic, it's often very satisfying. It's often very exciting. It's often really exciting. And so that's that you get caught in these relationships sometimes because it's hard to see. So what I suggest people do is you don't look at what the person's telling you when you're meeting them. You don't look at what they put on the Tinder or whatever app they use or what you say on your first date. You look at somebody's history and people who are narcissistic are going to have a history where they've damaged people and damaged relationships over and over. It's like a like a tornado going through town. So you're going to see this damage and this damage and this damage. Um, You're going to have to look for it because they're not going to volunteer it. But that's one thing you're going to see. The other thing that, that sometimes is useful is watch how people treat people who aren't in their power league or they're not dating. So if you're out with somebody, watch how they treat the staff. Watch how they treat other people at the restaurant, watch how they, just watch how they interact with the world, with people who they think they're better than, if that makes sense. And and so, because when you see that, when the narcissist is talking to you and they want a date, you're not going to see through that. If somebody's flattering, I mean, I couldn't see through it for a second. I'm a total sucker for this stuff. But when you start looking around at somebody's life and you go, ah, that looks pretty bad or that's not a great sign or there's not a lot of love there, there's not a lot of kindness there. If there's not that, if they're lacking that compassion, kindness, love, empathy, that's kind of the red flag. Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod Studios enjoy the show
2: and that's so interesting because it kind of gets back to your society point where you know you're you're thinking about people like on an individual level but then how are we functioning in societies and then societies that create systems where it's almost okay to treat people badly if you're, you know, nowadays on an airplane or nowadays, if you're, you know, working with us, talking to a service worker. So it, it yeah that's so interesting because it gets back to that point of, of both the individual and societal level narcissism.
1: Yeah. And you really want a society where people are treating each other with respect like each other have souls. You know, it's not, <laughs> not really complicated. Somebody, <laughs> I don't mean to get all get all woo with people. But like I look at someone, like, that person's got a soul. I got a soul. We're kind of the same deal, you know it it makes life pretty easy. But if you're, if you don't think like that, and, and by the way, they put so much stress on people now and so much fear and it's, it's hard. It's hard to be loving when you're scared. It's hard to be loving when you're financially stressed. So it's not like they make it easy for people. It's not like we're all on a Hawaiian vacation, you know, where it's Aloha, bro. You know, it's, it's a hard time. But yeah, I think that that breakdown of individuals seeing each other's individuals, um, It will fracture the whole society, and then you have a low trust society, and things get and that's what's happening right now. You can look at trust in institutions; they've been collapsing for twenty years, and I haven't looked at the data in maybe four or five years. I guarantee you, it's gotten worse, and that's not good. Uh, It's not good.
2: You're right. I mean, I think just thinking in terms of medicine and being a primary care provider, um, you you kind of have these. Uh, previous surveys that showed that primary care providers, nurses, pharmacists were very trusted members of society. So messages coming from them for your health and for other messages were probably something that was going to have an impact on someone. And I haven't seen it recently post-COVID, but just anecdotally, that does not seem to be a place where people are going for information they trust.
1: Yeah, I think professors are now in the same boat as well. So the the idea of having a trusted authority is kind of, it's just kind of gone. And some of that was uh, at least, um, I'll speak for professors, not medical professionals, because not what I do, but a lot of it was a self-inflicted wound. I mean, you get on Twitter all the time and say crazy stuff and people start going, you don't seem that smart. You seem like a knucklehead like everybody else. So social media in a way opened up a lot of things. Um, and, but there's also the society where when you don't have that natural respect, you know, natural trust, the thing just, it just collapses. Yeah. And I don't see where it's, I don't see how you build it back either. It's really, it's harder to build trust than to lose it. Like anyone knows from a relationship, right? You can have a trusting relationship, but when you lose trust, it's really hard to get it back. And it's very unfortunate.
2: That brings me to another situation. So the work life. So so many of us are, you know, spend the majority of our lives at work. So spotting a narcissist in the work environment, what's that like?
1: That is actually it's a little bit more challenging in a way because in in loving relationships, you know, dating, family, narcissism doesn't work really well. But when it comes to leadership and the workplace and more competitive locations, sometimes narcissism can can work really well. So people who are narcissistic tend to rise to leadership positions more readily than others. They call it emergent leadership. They, they want to be leaders. They seem confident. People are like, well, that guy seems confident. Let's put Keith in charge. Um, so in the workplace, you have these natural advantages that narcissists have. The uh, Another one is um in a workplace, often there's a lot of things people do to contribute that aren't really part of the job. So, hey, I'm going to put stuff together for a birthday party for one of the staff, or I'm going to you know, make sure we do have a softball game on a Saturday so we all get along. People who are narcissistic don't do that. They're not the ones doing that stuff. So they actually get more time to perform because they're not spending time with the community building. So what happens at, nar- at workplaces, you can have narcissists be very successful. So what do you do? Well, if you have a boss like that, you have to protect yourself because what they're probably going to do is use you or exploit you to the extent they can. And if things go wrong, they're going to blame you. So you need allies. You have a group of people. I mean, this is if you have a really problematic boss. You get allies where you're sharing information, keep records on everything in case things get bad. Don't be afraid to use HR. I mean, if it if it becomes a case of sexual harassment or other sort of exploitation. Um, which happens with narcissism. Um, so that's sort of the protection side. The other, the other side is you find somebody just ride their coattails. You just suck up to them and become their little toady. And
2: if you want to <laughs> you, you get ahead,
1: you you can become the toady of a narcissistic boss and rise your way to kind of having that power that's you know conferred to you from a from somebody with a real ego. It's not my generally not my life (laughs) choice, but I like to lay the options on the table for potential toadies out there.
2: That might be the most honest piece of information (laughs) (laughs) and advice that I have ever heard. So I appreciate you for sharing that. So, you know, again, uh, speaking of narcissism, let's get back to me. Uh, Just kidding. Uh, So I'm thinking of the children. So So you have... Children, you said you have a lot of children. No, I I don't.
1: I have two. It just seems like a lot.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I have three daughters. Um, Nice. Oh, really? Okay. So (laughs) so I get you again, you're speaking to me on the first day of school. So I I believe I do love them, I promise. Uh, So I'm just, you know, it's interesting, because you think about personality, because you don't just you're, you're studying not just narcissism, but personality. Um, And you I, I see very from a young age, one who's super empathetic. And just if. The other one yelps or makes a noise. She's the first one there to help. Then the other one, not so much. And I don't know if this is tween or, or you know, tween behavior or, or what, you know, if this is just natural part of growing up, but just it, it's very interesting. She will hear the call for help and and she will actively... Pretend she didn't hear it. She will actively do other things and find something, you know, that she has to do to to help herself in that moment. So, so what's going on? Am I raising a narcissist? And and how do I stop this?
1: Well, <laughs> um, there's a few things going on. The first, which I think you hit on, which every parent of of more than one child knows, is how much of this is just genetics. Right. So the old saying, you know, the developmentalist is with your first kid, you believe in parenting and with your second kid, you believe in genetics because you just I mean. And, and when we really look at the overall, you know, what's responsible for what genetics are, you know, 40 percent, somewhere 30 to 50 and parenting is maybe 10 or 20 percent of what it, we just don't have as much control. We can't really change our kids that much. We can love them, make them the best version of themselves that they can be but we can't turn them into something else. And the parents who try, who I want my kids to be like me, the, it's a disaster, right? So the second thing I want to say is, is narcissism with young kids isn't something you panic about. If if I have a, a young kid running around naked, look at me, dad, look at me. I'm not like, oh my God, this is the end of the world. I'm like, this is, this is exhibitionism in a young kid. This is normal. So there's what we call healthy narcissism and normal narcissism. See, You don't really, I don't like, you can predict narcissism in younger kids, but I don't like throwing the label out with with younger kids because it's just kind of part of what they're developing. They're changing so much. Um, The final point I'll make is that parents always go, what do I do to not have narcissistic kids? And, you know, the usual thing is you probably don't because if you're worried about it, you're probably a pretty nice person and you're probably doing a decent job and that's all you can do. But the advice I always give is, and I'll do it quickly, is CPR because uh, it's easier to remember, and it stands for compassion, passion, and responsibility. And the first is trying to uh, reward or enforce or model as a parent compassion with your kids. If you're compassionate, you're not going to be narcissistic. You can be a little bit full of yourself, but you're not going to be a bad person if you're a compassionate person. That's, so that's number one. That's easy one. The second one people don't think about as much as passion is just finding things you love because when people, I mean, people can go, you know, you're you're a physician, right? You go to medical school for ego. So you can run around with a Rolex and say, I'm a doctor, which is totally cool. Or you can go to medical school because you want to help people. Totally cool. Or you can want to go to medical school because you just love, love it. You just love the physiology, the body, the surgery. I mean, I watched the surgery once. It was so cool. I'd love to do that but that passion if you do things for passion you have that engagement but you're also drawing people to you because people love passion so you can you can get those benefits of narciss you can have, you can draw people you can be successful but you're pushing out good energy you're not stealing from people so passion is really important and then the third is ours is responsibility taking it's just learning that when you screw up you say I screwed up I'm sorry I'm going to make it right and people are narcissistic are real good at taking responsibility for success and they have real challenges with taking responsibility for failure. So just learning, and it's so empowering to be responsible when you screw up, you know, when you're young, you're like, I screwed up and like, but I overcame it, you know, and I'm okay. So, so those in terms of parents, CPR, that's kind of what I remember. And I'm a big believer in natural consequences too you know send your kids out in nature have a boulder run over them and and they go (laughs) okay i gotta gotta you know i can't blame anybody but myself and people learn some responsibility in nature here
2: is a quick word from our sponsor
0: we take this few seconds off to inform you our valued loyal listener about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the nespod studios Enjoy the show.
2: I love that. That's that's really great. Um, in terms of you know, just kind of going back to that relationship with you know two partners. Um, can you reform a narcissist? If you're in those people that are sending you messages saying, I think I'm in a relationship with a narcissist, are, what are they asking? Like, are they sort of trying to build up tools to leave? Are they building tools to stay? What, what are you seeing? Yeah.
1: So there's a real challenge here. Is As people ask, they say, can people or narcissistic change? And I can say, look, I've looked at all the literature on this, I've talked to the people, and the answer seems to be, and I wish we had gold standard clinical trials. We just don't. Um, but but what it looks to me is, yeah, people who are narcissistic can change. If Here's the catch. They can change in therapy if they want to and if they stick with it. And the biggest challenge... Um, with therapy with people who are narcissistic is, is retention, it's just staying in therapy because people will go in it and they'll get some negative feedback and they're like, I'm good and quit. But if people will stay in therapy with a good therapist, it seems that narcissism can can get better or or get, become reduced. And the therapy itself doesn't seem to matter so much. I mean, I've seen group therapy work. I've seen, you know, more cognitive behavioral therapies. I've seen more psychodynamic type therapy. All the different therapy modalities seem to be potentially effective. So that's the good news. Here's the bad news. You can't make somebody go into therapy. You can't force your husband or wife to want to change. You just can't do it. If you were the greatest psychiatrist on earth, if you were like God's psychiatrist, (laughs) you couldn't do it. It's just, it's very hard. I mean, you, you probably know this from school, but you go through training, like motivational interviewing. There's a whole process. You learn how to get people motivated for therapy or for any sort of medical treatment. So Yes, it's possible for that individual to change, but I don't think it's possible for you to make that individual change. And that's where people have the real problem is like now you just can't do it. I'm sorry, you just can't change people. It's really hard to change yourself. You just can't change people.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That that is, you know, one of the essential foundational truths that you can <laughs> right. <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> um so in terms of the ability to change, is there some factor also with overlapping conditions? So if you have other overlapping, maybe personality concerns, I don't even want to call it a disorder, but personality issues or other types of medical problems or psychiatric problems that it becomes harder?
1: So... My my answer, the quick answer would be yes, because it's sort of untangling things. But I'm trying to think in my own mind, like what would be your classic, you know, oh, yeah, we've got the narcissism and, and we've got the addiction. So that would be one you'd see. We've got the narcissism and the cocaine addiction. OK, we've got to work with both those problems, um, narcissism and marriage problems. But narcissism, what would you see it with? You know, paranoid personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, um, maybe bipolar disorder. So some of the things you might see go with it. Yeah, they're going to make treating it harder, but you know, clinical diagnosis is so hard. It's always kind of messy. And, um, but yeah, I I do, I do think more is more is worse. I think a history of trauma with narcissism is going to make it harder to treat than if it's just sort of there. Um, but it's always a little bit challenging to treat narcissism because people who are narcissistic like who they are. So it's harder to change than if if you walk in, like, I don't like myself. I'm depressed. I have low self-esteem. It's hard to change. Now imagine if you like yourself, you don't have low self-esteem, right?
2: Right, right, right. So anything that you really wanted to get across that I haven't asked you about?
1: No, no, I don't. I don't really. Um, I, I here's what I will say to people, if it, it which which is just something you didn't ask about, is that when people are interested in science and interested in something like narcissism, don't be afraid to get on Google Scholar and look at research yourself. Don't be afraid to read books. Don't you're not you know like we were saying before. I'm just an academic, but I'm just a dad. I just do my best. Not some super genius. You can figure this stuff out. And so I, I guess I encourage people to just not be afraid to dig in and try to try to think through stuff.
2: That so it's kind of like the same thing, like with medicine, where if something's wrong, you feel like something's wrong, then that's a good time to sort of regroup, take a breath, figure out what could make it better. And so yeah. that includes seeking help through, you know, therapy, or like you said, individually, we have start
1: looking. And then um, like everyone, you you know, finding a good therapist is really hard. (laughs) That's the other thing. (laughs) I think it's probably the same with primary care physicians, just hard to find people. So don't be afraid to just keep looking, just go Mm -hmm. for it, keep and just stick with it, because it's worth it to figure stuff out.
2: Thank you so much for such a great conversation. I really appreciate your time.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. That was great.